This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Coming up, how safe is Colorado's election system from hacking? But first, to politics from another era. In the early days of the republic, it wasn't clear what the wife of the president should be called. Sometimes it was the presidentess or Mrs. President. Martha Washington was often referred to as Lady Washington. Like her husband, George, she had to navigate a brand new role. So what was it like to be one of the first first ladies? And how much has the role changed since then? Historian Jeannie Abrams from the University of Denver has written a new book about Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, and Dolly Madison. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Of course, uh, the Americans had just defeated the British in the Revolutionary War. How did that rejection of the monarchy help shape the role of first lady? I mean, you you didn't want to come across as too highfalutin, right? Correct. So really what they had to navigate this new role was to try to figure out how to maintain a regal demeanor without a throne or a crown. So everything, ceremonies, clothing, what food they served, all were indicative of the manner that the government was unfo- was unfolding. Interesting. You had to be regal, but you couldn't be too queen-like. And this, as you say, came down to what they wore, where the fabrics they wore came from, and even the kind of chair they sat in. Tell me about that. Well, several things. Let's go back maybe to the fashion first, okay. because I think we don't realize how much um, fashion made a political statement at the time. So for, you mentioned the um, inauguration, for example. In England, um, kings and queens um, had ceremonies that had been developed over centuries, and they wore elaborate costumes when King George and Queen Charlotte were coronated. Um, One of the witnesses said that Queen Charlotte wore a jewel-encrusted gown with pearls, for example, as big as cherries. The train of her dress was carried by her lady-in-waiting. A canopy was held over her head by 16 barons. It was made of what they called cloth of gold, gold fibers, and it was a major contrast to what happened in the newly formed United States. George Washington, when he was inaugurated, um, was dressed in a simple um, brown suit that was manufactured from cloth from Connecticut. Uh, And his wife, Martha, was not even at his side at the time of the inauguration. And when she finally arrived in New York about a month later, she wore an elegant but simple dress. And the local newspaper um, reported with great admiration that she was clothed in the manufacture of our country. Of our country. Right. And and so this became incredibly political and these first first ladies really were under the microscope this this way uh the public gauging whether they were american enough and had separated enough from the monarchy and there at one point the question is raised whether martha washington during a political salon is sitting in too high a chair if it looks too throne like Correct. So she actually um, sat on a platform in a, I guess, a comfortable but not unusual chair. But many people criticized the Washingtons for bringing back monarchy. That was too much like a throne, even though there was really nothing throne-like about it. And Abigail Adams, who 
hated the press and felt that they were very often very critical and unfair, um, really shared with her husband her feeling that everything the Washingtons did were really with the best intentions in all innocence. You write about the close friendship that Martha Washington and Abigail Adams formed. We uh, will talk about that a little bit later. But I think it's really important to understand the role of women in general in the late 1700s in this country, the constraints on them. They really didn't enjoy the full rights of citizens at that point. They did not have legal rights. And... um, They were not married women, were not allowed to engage in any legal contracts. They couldn't even write wills. So they were were really operating under the laws of coverture, um, really what that that means literally covered by their husbands, correct. So even though none of the three women would be what we would call feminists today, and um, I think the word actually applying to them is really an anachronism, I think we have to be very careful not to examine the the past from a presentist type of lens. But um, Abigail certainly um, believed very firmly in education for women, and she also really tried to influence her husband in terms of legal rights for women. I want to talk about their political involvement, because as First Lady Martha Washington, you write, is credited with introducing the country's first political salon. What was a political salon and why were they important? So we're talking about the days before television, radio, um, certainly print is coming into its own, many more newspapers. But the way people interacted was really one-on-one. And the American salons really were an arena for politicians to kind of experiment with their ideas, try to persuade one another to come to their um, side. And in that very fragile new republic where there were very soon great divisions between the main, the main, the only two political parties at the time, the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans, um, trying to establish unity was a goal um, that was often elusive. And it was often a task that the first ladies saw themselves as fulfilling, uh, helping their husbands in this way. Well, uh, several things. I believe that they really felt their job was to burnish the um, reputations of their husbands. I think many of them uh, acted as kind of informal PR agents, um, the something that we have more formally, obviously, today. But I think they saw that these salons and dinners and entertainments were a way to move forward the agendas for their husband's um, term in office. Which may not be an overtly political act, but is absolutely one with political consequences. Uh, You say the term first lady probably didn't come until much later when Mary Todd Lincoln was in the role. And you note that there's really never been an official mandate for the role of first lady. It's always been something crafted by the woman who holds the position. Uh, Jeannie, as first lady, Martha Washington declared that she felt like a state prisoner. Did she give any examples or further explanation well, of why? Well, I want to put that in a little perspective. I think one of the great values of studying history actually is to put current events in perspective. So I think what we see is from the very first, both the president and first lady were under constant public scrutiny. 
So that was something that Martha did not welcome. Um, she was, when um, Washington was elected, they were both in their late 50s. Um, being in your late 50s in the 18th century was older than being in your late 50s um, today. She felt that they were destined to hopefully live out their lives in tranquility in Mount Vernon. So first of all, she did not like moving to New York. and The capital at the time. Yes, the um, temporary seat of government at the time. And she did not like her social interactions being dictated by the president and cabinet members. And so she wrote her niece and said that she felt often like a state prisoner. That's not unusual. Um, uh, Harry Truman often referred to the White House as the great white prison. Mm -hmm. So probably most um, presidential couples have had very similar outlooks. It seems that this view of the experience of being a first lady is what brings Martha Washington and Abigail Adams closer together. They become uh, quite good friends. Um, but compared to them, Dolly Madison really comes across as larger than life. I mean, you refer to her as a celebrity of her day. What do you think she brought to that still fledgling office that the others hadn't? Well, Martha was, first of all, an experienced hostess um, who actually knew how to occupy her position then Abigail Adams was probably the most intellectual of the three first first ladies. Um, she was a political theorist in her own right. She tussles with the press often in defense of her husband. Correct. And she really um, is extremely well-read, um, probably, as one of her contemporaries said, the most knowledgeable woman of her time in terms of politics and um, culture. I understand that you think she'd be president if she were alive today. Yes. I think that if um, women had been allowed to run for office, um, she probably would have been even more popular than her husband, John, who could be a little prickly sometimes. Okay. Um, Abigail certainly had charm, even though she was a very strong-willed um, woman. But I think um, what... Dolly Madison was able to do was really, she was very politically savvy, and she also had great charisma. And that combination of the two enabled her to really move her husband forward. Madison could be charming in small groups, but he was pretty shy and retiring generally, and she humanized him, and she was probably the key to his political success. It is really uh, Dolly Madison who helps shape early Washington, what became Washington, D.C. Uh, she and her husband are really the first administration to install themselves permanently in, I think, what was called Washington mm -hmm. City back then. I, I wasn't aware of how much she shaped the city. You know, I, I want to note that um, the first three first ladies don't represent the first three administrations because Thomas Jefferson had been elected as a widower. Correct. And um, even though Thomas Jefferson's daughter Martha occasionally acted as hostess in the White House, it was really Dolly. It wasn't the White House at that time, the president's house. Um, it was really Dolly who experienced her apprenticeship, apprenticeship so to speak, um, as first lady because – um, she was um, very prominent as Madison's wife at the time, and she and Jefferson got along very well. And Jefferson, although, again, a charming, um, brilliant personality, 
tended to be very informal consciously in the White House. Um, he was the head of the what was then considered um, Democ- Re- Republican Democrats, Democratic Republicans. They hadn't um, arrived versus at their the final versus so. the Federalists. He really emphasized um, the common man and tried to be very informal. Uh, he famously greeted guests in his slippers Um A lot of um, contradictions in personality. He also brought, I think, over 600 bottles of fine wine back from France. Um, So um, there were some things that um, were way beyond the realm of the common man that he um, exhibited. But in any case, um, often um, Dowley would be there to smooth over differences, both in um, Jefferson's administration and in Madison's. In Jefferson's as well. Interesting. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the first First Ladies of the Republic with University of Denver historian Jeannie Abrams. And Jeannie, I was fascinated to read in your book that New Jersey gave some women the vote briefly in the 1790s. I think it was only for women who were landed. Is that right? Yeah. And then it was quickly taken away. Uh, I want to ask about suffrage and whether... Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, or Dolly Madison had their eye in some regard on women being able to vote? I think only in a very limited fashion. Again, since um, Abigail Adams certainly was an advocate of legal rights for women, I don't think that she realistically envisioned political rights um, at the time, but I think she thought it might um, really occur down the horizon she did write her sister about the women in New Jersey who were allowed to vote. Um, she looked at that with admiration. Um, but she also um, really was a woman of her era in many ways. She felt that men and women had very distinct, separate roles. And at one point she wrote, um, all honor is really in following your role to the best of your capacity. But that doesn't mean um, that she also didn't support um, an idea in the future of women voting. What she did believe was that even though women didn't hold the reins of government at her time, she felt that they should have a voice in how the um, journey went forward. I think today we often associate the office of the First Lady with doing good works, dedicating yourself to a cause. Was that true in the early days of the Republic? I I know it was for Martha Washington, especially when it came to revolutionary soldiers. Yes, really for all three of them. Um, Most people um, in colonial America certainly thought of themselves as full English citizens, and that's indeed one of the reasons that um, that the United States, what would become the United States, broke off from um, Europe. But um, I think that Martha became very politicized during the American Revolution and was an advocate for the cause. And she also um, championed the rights of the common soldiers. Um, Remember, she um, was by Washington's side um, every winter in the army camps, and she um, physically um, assisted the soldiers. Um, She sewed for them. She kind of offered them encouragement and comfort. And she probably the only real political act of her um, role as first lady was that she really advocated for pensions and um, 
really funds for the soldiers after the war. So she was probably the first example of a first lady who took on a public cause. Abigail was certainly interested in a number of private charities, and Dolly actually became a major advocate for the Children's Orphanage in Washington and sort of served as their at least honorary chair. She contributed funds, and she was a good um, public relations manager for the orphanage. I, I want to wrap up not on a terribly high note, but but you can't talk about the first first ladies without talking about the sickness and the death that surrounded them. I mean, they were just uh, constantly dealing with the loss of family because of disease in early America. I think what is really impressive is how the three women carried on so admirably in their role as First Lady, considering all, as you mentioned, the things going on in the background. Martha Washington um, lost all her four children um, to disease. Um, Abigail Adams um, really was only survived by two of her children. Her daughter, um, Nabby, succumbed to breast cancer. Um, One of her sons really was a victim of um, side effects from alcoholism. And Dolly Madison really came onto the American stage um, during the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 in Philadelphia. She lost her first husband and Um, her baby, and um, she remained with the two-year-old son, and um, the Madisons never had any children together, so that was her remaining child. And on top of that, constantly themselves and their spouses um, felled one time after another by diseases. Um, Obviously, we're not immune um, to disease today, and we're battling with flu right now in the United States. Indeed. But never to the level that occurred on really a daily basis. What most surprised you in putting together this book, briefly? I think I did not realize, first of all, how articulate and knowledgeable all three women were. When I read their letters, I'm just amazed at what a grasp they had of the political situation at the time. We think of Martha specifically as being very apolitical and kind of a meek helpmate to um, her husband, George. Um, She was a very strong-minded, opinionated woman. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to be here, Ryan. Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver has written First Ladies of the Republic, Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, Dolly Madison, and the creation of an iconic American role. You can read an excerpt at CPR.org. Russia is likely to meddle in this year's election. That's what intelligence officials told members of Congress this morning. They could try to hack voting systems or influence outcomes through misinformation. So how's Colorado set up to protect itself? Well, a new report says the state's in pretty good shape compared to the rest of the country, but there are vulnerabilities here. Colorado's elections director is Judd Choate. He's on the line. Hi, Judd. Hi, Ryan. Uh, Right off the top, do you expect these kinds of attacks on the voting system in this country to continue? And is Colorado's election system safe from them? Yes, we expect that they will continue. Uh, we, We receive dozens of scans of our systems on a daily basis. 
Uh, we've been uh, pretty diligent about protecting ourselves for years now, and um, we feel pretty good about our situation. When you say scans, uh, that's not an outright hack, but it's a, a sort of um, preliminary try. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it, the, the way to think about it is it's basically a knock on the door. Uh, we choose not to open the door to every person who attempts to scan our system or knock on the door. We don't open it. So uh, this is kind of a situation where we can be selective about those who enter our system. Uh, we have double firewalls, so it uh, gives us multiple opportunities to stop people that are trying to intrude. That said, I don't know that anybody would have predicted the extent of Russian interference in the last cycle. Um, is this a case of the protections being awfully good, or is it that we don't know what's about to hit us and you, you just can't prepare for the unknown? Well, you can prepare for the unknown. So the way you do that is you put up every barrier that uh, you can realistically put up based on your understanding of the various cybersecurity um, uh, possibilities okay. and capabilities that your system can produce. So that's what we do. We try to be prepared for anything that could potentially um, hit us. And we are fortunate that we have an internal IT infrastructure with many very sophisticated people and systems so we're able to uh, defend our system in ways that perhaps other states aren't. In a way that other states aren't. Uh, that seems rather important, and it reflects a bit of this report that I mentioned a moment ago. It came from the Center for American Progress. It's a think tank, leans left, and they indeed rated all the states on election security. They gave Colorado a grade of B. I'll say no states got an A. And they praised Colorado for its post-election audits, which are done to make sure the count is accurate, especially important in very close races. Uh, but they did ding you in a couple of places, particularly for allowing people who are registered in Colorado but live overseas to vote electronically. I understand that can be by email, fax. What's your response to that criticism? Well, it's a policy trade-off. So we're prepared to accept that risk, given that we have people who are on mission in Cameroon or a person in the Peace Corps in Senegal. We also have uh, members of the military who are under the ice sheet in, um, in uh, the Arctic um, in submarines. And there really are no realistic ways to get them ballots or get those ballots returned within the window of time which is required in our election without using electronic means. And so uh, we understand that that does create a vulnerability, but we, we then double down on protecting ourselves against that vulnerability. So uh, the Center for American Progress, uh, you're correct in saying that they took some points off because of that, but it's, it's a vulnerability we're willing to accept because we're willing to do uh, the cybersecurity defense on the back end. How many voters does that represent just for scale? Uh, 22,000 people voted electronically in the 2016 election um, compared to 3.119 million um, who voted in that election uh, for the entire state. How do you double down then on the vulnerability you see there? Well, so we have created secure ballot return, which is a way that voters can upload their ballot to one particular website that is um, sort of double protected through logins. And then the county can then log into that system and pull down the ballot. So 
the way that the, uh, most states do electronic ballot submission and return is that they the voter votes that ballot and then sends it back to the county or sends it back to that jurisdiction across an email. Uh, we don't do that for the lion's share of the people that vote electronically in the state of Colorado. So we feel like that's a much better and much more protected uh, way to, uh, to transmit uh, electronic ballots. You know, it strikes me that you can do everything to protect the voting system. But if misinformation in the run-up to the vote is the tool, it, it, it doesn't matter. You could have all the security in the world. In, a, in, other way, in other words, something's already been breached, you know? Yeah, and there are certain things which are within our lane and things that we, we have some power over. And misinformation is one where we will struggle because mm-hmm. uh, that's not, I'm an elections official. I'm not in the media. I'm not a policymaker. And so I have to do what, um, what I have in front of me, which is to do my very best to secure the system. Let's switch to a bit of a different topic now. The state's primary election is coming up June 26th. It'll be a completely different process than we've seen before. Uh, Until now, someone had to be registered with a political party to vote in a primary. And this year, unaffiliated voters can pick a party and vote in its primary without changing their registration. So an entirely new system, uh, perhaps a bunch of voters who aren't used to voting in, in party primaries, up to a million new people. Are you more concerned there about confusion or vulnerability? Well, I think that there will be some confusion. But uh, for the lion's share of voters um, in Colorado, about 64 percent, 63 percent of our our voting population is identified with the Republican or Democratic Party. So they're affiliated. So for for them, this election will look like every other state primary election. Mm -hmm. But for unaffiliated voters, uh, if they haven't demonstrated a preference prior to the election. So if they haven't selected uh, the receipt of one ballot or the other, uh, which they can do by going online to Go Vote Colorado, um, if, if they don't prefer a ballot ahead of the election, we're going to send them both ballots. So we're going to send them a Democratic and a Republican ballot, and then they can vote one of those. They can't vote both of them. They can't choose races across the two ballots. They have to vote one of them. And if, they, if we receive both back, but only one voted, we'll count that one. But if we receive them both back and they're both ba- uh, counted, we're not going to be able to count those ballots. And, and unfortunately, that will cause problems. So we're hoping that we're, we can keep that down. Uh, it was news to me that you can um, log in in advance and choose the ballot you want. I appreciate that perspective. Judd, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Happy to help. Judd Choate, he's director of elections in the Colorado Secretary of State's office. He also leads the National Association of State Election Directors. And that's Colorado Matters for today. My, are we grateful for you. You make everything we do possible here at CPR News. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner and the show at Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Public Radio.